Hello, and welcome to Insights into Wealth with Bull Wealth. I'm Julian Smith, CEO of Bull Wealth. Today, we explore the opportunities presented in the global small cap equity environment. Kevin Van Dyke, one of Bull Wealth's managing partners, and Christian Deckert, lead portfolio manager of Moore's Global Small Cap Fund and co-CIO of Moore Investment Management, discuss the opportunities and challenges within global small caps, along with its underlying trends, as well as how Christian and his team have positioned their fund. As you know, we like to keep it short and simple. So Kevin and Christian will discuss Moore's philosophy and process and how the fund strategy can succeed in many different environments. Thank you very much for joining us today, Christian. It's very nice to have you with us. Before getting specifically into small cap, perhaps you can provide us with a brief background on the firm, how the current investment approach has been developed. I know the tagline is be boring, make money. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that, but maybe you can get into that and give us some details on what that tells us about your approach. More is almost 50 years old. We started managing money for private clients. And from that moment on, the idea had been that, well, it's not just about returns that we provide our clients, but also the risk level at which we do that. So the goal is to, yes, provide good returns, but also to manage risk really well. So that is, I think, what has led us to our tagline, be boring, make money, the be boring standing, in my opinion, for good risk management, not going too far out the risk spectrum, but choosing the profitable bits in that lower risk part of the investment spectrum. Thank you. And what are some of the unique features of the more approach? I know we've talked before with other members of the team about how you determine intrinsic value with the range of values and the ranking matrix and so on. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think what sets us apart, first of all, is our team. So there's 35 people in research. We come from more than 10 different countries, speak more than 10 different languages. You may have figured out by now that my accent, that's not the typical Alberta accent. I'm originally from Germany. Some examples of people I work for, well, one of the people has a South African background, someone has a Chinese background, someone has a Middle Eastern background. So we're from all sorts of backgrounds, speak all sorts of languages. And then we have, um, last time I looked, more than 15 different academic backgrounds as well, which is very important to us. So bringing new ways of thinking to the problem of investing that most people try to solve purely by looking at BA, finance, economics. So we try to add some additional ways of thinking in there, because if we do and think like everyone else, we will not get any results that are different from what the others receive. So that is very typical of more, I would say. The other thing is that we're quite process-driven. And for a firm of our size, maybe surprising, but we all follow one process, one philosophy. We buy wealth-creating businesses run by excellent management teams at a discount to intrinsic value, um, one process philosophy. And so not the value desk or growth team or something. It's all one. I think those are a few of the things that set us apart, apart from our independence as a firm. Firm is employee-owned, and that's really fundamental to what we do and the culture we've built. Just to follow up on your point about the diversity of backgrounds. How does that help shape the way that you see the world from all those different perspectives? Different backgrounds help us in the sense that we have different life experiences and we do global investing, obviously, in the global small cap and the global equity fund. So it is really helpful that we have more global experience to draw from on the team. Contrast that to imagine a group of people that were only from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, 
or only from Boston, Massachusetts, or only from London in the UK. So we bring together these different perspectives and people just have made different life experiences, may even have seen a different economic cycles, right? If you grew up in Canada, I don't know, in the 1990s, everyone here will have seen roughly the same cycle. But we do have people that grew up in the former Soviet Union in the 1990s. They have made very different economic experiences and have seen very different things from inflation, decay, and so on. Well, I grew up in Western Germany in the 1990s, a very prosperous time. So that brings more experiences to the table, which we then, through our culture, through our collaborative way, try to harness because while cognitive diversity is nice, but it only works if you can really then use it and if everyone has a voice. That goes to our culture that we've worked on so much over the last 20 years. Same goes for the languages, by the way. Last year, we interviewed more than 1,100 management teams from around the world. And of course, we aim to have these interviews, if possible, in the language that is most natural to the management team. I actually wanted to follow up on that point you made about different languages, speaking with management teams from different places all over the world. Is that even more important in small cap, where you can have teams that are more regional? Yeah, in small caps, I mean, there's exceptions to everything, but to paint with a very broad brush, I would say, yes, in small cap land, often you will run into CEOs or CFOs that have less English skills, less foreign language skills, while with many larger companies, yeah, maybe they have worked for the same company in an English-speaking country or somewhere where they needed to speak English. But I would say it matters everywhere because it speaks to building trust. It's easier to build trust with someone if you can really communicate well, and it's helpful for us. Well, we think we get an advantage if we jump the language barrier. So if we speak in the language that is most comfortable to them and they don't have to come to us and give up their language they feel most comfortable in. Still many interviews we do in English, but the margin, it is an advantage that we can sometimes use. What are some of the other largest differentiators that come with investing in small cap as opposed to large cap? For valuation, for instance, is it more challenging to do in the small cap space? Well, I would say small caps follow a different cycle than large caps. I've sort of worked in small caps for 20 years plus maybe now. And the cycle from my experience tends to be a bit different. One simple example is I remember in the summer of 2007, so before 2008, the global financial crisis, small caps ran into trouble way before the large cap peers because small cap is partly a marginal asset class. A lot of people will go to large caps. And then when performance chasing starts, people all of a sudden go to small caps that otherwise wouldn't be naturally in small caps. So I think that just puts it on a different cycle. I love personally love small caps for investing in it with my own money and for managing a portfolio there for two reasons. It's so curious because you find many companies that do really something niche or odd that you would have never heard of before. And so there's also these niche ways to make money. And sometimes the quality of business models in small caps is extremely high. Like they're really good with strong competitive advantages, not large markets. That's why they're small caps. They're not Ford or GM or Microsoft, something that we all use. But they're small and niche, and to the customers they have, they are very important products. So yeah, these symptoms are really great investments. The fact that they're niche and smaller, does that make them harder to value reliably? We don't think that there is a reliable valuation in the first place because we value companies on Monte Carlo simulations. So our view is that the future is always uncertain. We don't know the world. Well, if we did, we could just buy lottery tickets, right? If we knew the future, we knew which numbers come. So we have to work with the uncertainty of the world. And therefore, that's also how we look at valuation. And we look at a company at all their numbers, at their revenues, margins, capital intensity, under thousands of different scenarios to come up with valuation ranges. So typically at more, you would not hear that someone says, oh, the stock is worth 
57 euros 23. But someone would say like my 80% confidence interval is probably that it's worth between 24 and 36 or something like that. So we think probabilistically in, in that sense. How do you find these niche type companies? How do you continue to uncover new ideas around the globe in a small cap market? I was just going to mention that from what we've seen over the years, there's often, I don't know, much of the fund it represents, but Scandinavia, for instance, there's often new ideas coming up in Scandinavia, whereas the US component of the fund has typically been underweight relative to, say, the small cap market. So just curious how you keep coming up with new ideas in this type of portfolio. I understand actually two questions in there. So let me start with the new ideas one, and then I'll talk about portfolio management. So on the new ideas bit, we try to cast a wide net. The universe is thousands of companies, obviously, in global small cap. So we cast a wide net. One thing we've done more recently, again, is just looked at what we call broken IPOs. So companies that went public recently, disappointed the market, and then dropped. This is usually a good setup because investors aren't really familiar with these businesses yet. They're fresh. They might be more willing to abandon them if something goes wrong. So sometimes opportunities can be found in that space. But sometimes we just do a word search of all the companies listed in the world. Sometimes we would look for high returns on capital. So there's different ways to look for new ideas. And we try to always have a mix of new ideas. So not look at only Brazilian companies now or only companies that have a certain word search or something, but really the full spectrum. And then we tend to lock ourselves away. Well, this was pre-COVID, lock ourselves away. Now we're just (laughs) remote in our normal home offices. And as a team, we try to have, for an example, 20 management interviews in one week. So we would do a bit of due diligence on these companies, have 20 management interviews within one week. Yeah. And then benchmark what we've heard against each other and then pursue only the best ideas of that batch. Well, or what we thought are the best ideas. And so that constant benchmarking is in a way the idea generation process. Now on portfolio management and the regional split of the portfolio, you've mentioned the matrix before. We do put stocks in the portfolio based on how they rank on a two-dimensional matrix where one dimension is the quality, defined as quality of business model, management, and quality of risks. And the other axis is the return potential we expect. And obviously, the higher return potential, the better it would be. So what we're looking for is highest quality companies at the lowest valuation or a trade-off between the two. And when we put different stocks from around the world on the matrix, often for the same quality, we get better valuations in other parts than the U.S., Why is that? Might have to do with the Fed liquidity over the last 12, 13 years. Might have to do with that there's not much of a language barrier to invest in the US for really almost anyone on this planet, right? You can talk English to every US small cap company. And so that's what's led us there. But we're open to changing that if we found better deals in the US. And then just to touch on your Scandinavia question, yeah, Scandinavia, the Nordic countries are phenomenally good market for investing money. It's a great work ethic. It's very high respect of shareholder rights there. You do not have to explain to management teams that it's the shareholders who own the business. That's why traditionally Scandinavia tends to rank pretty highly. But it's all bottom-up and matrix-oriented, and there's not a top-down component to construction. So the weights are completely bottom-up. We look at company by company, and then we construct the portfolio for that. Of course, there is a limit to this company by company bottom-up approach in the sense that if we only felt, oh, the great companies at a cheap price are all, let's say, in Scandinavia or all in Brazil, then we would get wary or concerned from a risk management perspective. So we would put limits in there from a risk management perspective. But in a way, yes, you're absolutely right. The regional weights we have are the result of our bottom-up company-by-company analysis. 
just curious if you could give an example. It would probably be something that no one has heard of, a company that no one's heard of, but an example of a recent Nietzsche kind of addition to the portfolio. Oh, a recent addition. Well, I have a Nietzsche one that's not a recent addition. I think we've had it for two or three years, but I think it's an interesting one because maybe you, Kevin, might use their products. It's DeLonghi. It's our largest position, actually, at the moment. It's an Italian company that produces espresso machines and other small household appliances. If you use the Nespresso, if you take a Nespresso capsule, those machines tend to be DeLonghi machines. So although they say Nespresso on it, in reality, they're made by DeLonghi quite often. But they also make fancier coffee machines that are not Nespresso. That's a very profitable business, which surprised us at first because many other small household appliances aren't really that profitable. But it seems that as humans, when it comes to coffee, we're all very touchy and we seem to be willing to pay a price premium for a brand we recognize and that we like and where we like to taste. So DeLonghi, excellent business model, high returns on capital, very good management team. There's a DeLonghi family, actually, that are so proud of the business that they even put their name on it. So they've run the business quite well. Very good capital allocation decisions in the past. And we bought this, I think, around the start of COVID. There were concerns. I remember a phase when a lot of their production offices in China, when the Chinese production was closed and the market was quite concerned around that. So, yeah, it's been a holding for a while and it's done well for us. You mentioned the DeLonghi family. Curious how that is also probably a differentiator in small cap in some cases where you see founding families or founders as significant shareholders in the companies. And is that a fairly significant factor in what you do? Well, I think I'll quote Charlie Munger and the partner of Warren Buffett. And forgive me if I don't get the quote exactly, but he says, like, never think about anything else but alignment if you haven't thought about alignment enough yet. And so alignment really matters in everything we do, whether it's to get your kids to do their homework or uh, whether you talk about management compensation and getting the right behavior out of people. So when you have people with integrity and you have the right alignment with them, then this is a beautiful thing for shareholders because these people go to the office every day. So they are really close to their business. They own shares and they have one interest that the business does well in the long run so that the shares do well in the long run. And that is great alignment. Often that alignment around the world gets diluted by management compensation, which is too high and so on. But simple share ownership is a a great tool of alignment with the other shareholders. So there's your alignment through the shares. Just one last question, more sort of broadly speaking, in an inflationary environment, the risk of rising interest rates, does that impact the small cap market differently than it would large caps? And how so? Yeah, I think it does in several ways. I've mentioned that in my opinion, small caps are an asset class that's maybe more on the fringes of capital markets. And so when there's a liquidity flowing into the markets, well, there's proportionate amounts of liquidity flowing into small caps. And the opposite is true, I think, as liquidity drains from the market. Small caps are all as equal, in my opinion, hit harder. That is, in a way, what I referred to earlier with the 2007 example. Also, I think what we've seen, partly with some small cap performance over the last few months, it's often small caps are early and a bit more marginal. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to join me today, providing this overview on Maurer and specifically through the lens of a small cap manager. So thank you very much, Christian. Thanks again to our guest, Christian Deckard. Insights into Wealth is a Vocal Fry Studios production. Our producer is Sabrina Brathwaite. I'm your host, Julian Smith. If you want to reach out to me, please email me directly, or you may find me on LinkedIn. Bullwealth is the corporate group name of Bull Capital Management, Inc. and Bullwealth Management Group, Inc., 
Bull Capital Management Inc. is registered as a portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in the provinces of Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, and Quebec, and also as an investment fund manager in the province of Ontario. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to solicit or to provide research or investment advice to the listeners by Bullwealth or any of its affiliates. Also, the receipt of the podcast by its listeners is not to be taken as constituting solicitation or giving of research or investment advice by Bullwealth or any of its affiliates. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part.